Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Dope Black Dads podcast, a place where we are changing the narrative and having progressive conversations about black fathers, as well as creating a safe digital space for the community. This is the Dope Black Dad podcast. My name is Marvin Harrison. Today, I'm very, very excited. I'm joined by David Harewood, an incredible actor. David, I'm just going to fawn over you slightly. But as someone who I've known on Black British TV and our British screens for a very long time. You've done programs very close to my heart. So it's emotional that you're here today. Things that we've enjoyed, that we loved. And I think it's really important that you get your flowers as an incredible actor, as a, as a group of inspirational actors of a generation that didn't necessarily get celebrated at the time as the ways they should do you have then gone on to the US and become huge and you're now in huge productions again and I think that you know you've now come home to this podcast and we are very very grateful to have you thank you so much for joining us how are you today? Thank you so much for pointing that out and for recognizing it it's nice that we um as you say we're finally getting I was speaking to Lenny James just yesterday and two of the older generation of black actors you know, who, who, you know I mean we had a degree of success back in the UK, but, you know, we've really found that position of strength, financial strength in America. And we were both sort of lamenting yesterday how it's taken us probably 15 years to, to get to the stage that most of our Caucasian actors were, were at, you know, contemporaries were at 10, 15 years ago. So, so it's nice to finally get here and it's nice to be recognised. And I'm very excited about this book coming out, but... It's nice to be coming back to England from a place of success and strength as opposed to needing to to jump at the first opportunity that comes my way, which is what I had to do in the past. I can I can sort of pick and not say pick and choose, but I, I, I can be a little bit more choosy with my work now and not just have to pay the rent. So just go to the book. First and foremost, wow. It's it's an incredible read and, and what really captured me the subject matter is really powerful but the loudest thing to me was just the process you must have went through to actually write the book can can you tell us a little bit about the journey to like even what you were diagnosed with and then what that journey was for the creation of the book well i guess it all really sprang from the documentary the psychosis and me you know having tweeted out in 2016 i believe it was 2017 that i had uh, a, a bout of psychosis. Uh, I think it was World Mental Health Day. Having tweeted that out, I then sort of, you know, kind of let the cat out of the bag and and 
was kind of inundated with a, with requests for interviews from you know from various news outlets, and I, I sort of hadn't realised that I hadn't gone public with it previously. I mean, I've told friends about it and told close associates about it over the years, but I hadn't really gone public with it. When I went public with the information, I, I then wrote an article for for the Guardian about having the breakdown, and a friend of mine who I mentioned in the book, Danny. Uh, read the article and was was heard to comment, that's not how I remember it. So I was immediately kind of think, thinking, oh, have I got this wrong? So I was thinking it was just a sort of three-week, slightly manic. I had no idea that it was such an important and major event in my life. And I, I sort of, it was very painful. And I sort of buried the trauma along with a lot of those relationships, I just buried it all and just sort of got on with my career. So the documentary was a real kind of awakening for me and a realisation of just how ill I was. And it really shook me. It really frightened me. And I was asked by a few people to sort of write a book, but I I didn't have the confidence in myself and I didn't know what I was going to write about. And then I met the wonderful Natalie, who asked for my some of the writing that I had. And I said to some of the writing, and she immediately just said, this is, you know, great. And you need to write a book. You need to do this. And she kind of directed me and gave me, gave me some pointers as to how to frame the, the book. And then lockdown happened, and I went back to England. And it was the longest period I've been in England for 10 years, lockdown last year. And it was lovely to be home. And I just found that um, one morning I just got up and wrote an entire chapter just in about an hour. I followed that up with another chapter, which, again, was a kind of stream of consciousness about my youth that came out, and that that was another couple of hours. But I knew I couldn't really write the book. I couldn't really get into the meat of the book until I got back here to Vancouver, where my medical records were. And as as I say in the book, I've had those medical records for two years, but I've just been too afraid to look at it because it's it's tough. It's It's really painful stuff to look at. Once I delved into that, once I'd opened that envelope and started to read, uh, the fear started falling away. And just the truth, man, the truth, just sitting with your own vulnerabilities, sitting with your own pain, it was actually strengthening. So it was sort of sitting with with, with all those truths, that um, those dark truths that enabled me then to dig a little further. And the book just, just... Flew out of me in the space of about five months. Can I ask what the the impetus was? So I, I can envision World Mental Health Day. You're probably seeing lots of things talking about mental health. You're, you're some sort of awareness of your own journey. What what was the moment that you said? Because obviously you haven't discussed this before, and it was a bit of a cat out of bag moment. What was the leap? Because many people do not speak about mental health in any form of way of in depth, and it's still something that still gets shied away from. So what what was your moment? I guess you know, I you know it's become more and more of a topic over the last couple of years. And, you know, I've had this knowledge I, you know, of, of my breakdown for like 30 odd years. And so I guess my, my original impetus was to let people know that it's not the, it's not the end of the line. If you have a mental health issue, you know, one shouldn't be embarrassed about it. I'm, I'm, the whole impetus for me was to try and reveal to people that you can lead fully successful lives despite having a history of mental health issue. 
So it was really to kind of inspire others. And then I think that was the original impetus behind the tweet, which was just to say, look after yourself, get some help if you can, because so many of us don't get help. And whether that's because of the fear they have of the system or the fear they have of being institutionalized and over-medicated, as I was, I, I kind of wanted people to, I wanted to try and break that barrier between fear and getting help. And I think I, I tried to do that with the documentary as well. Just letting people in and showing people how destabilizing it is, but also how I'm just trying to be, I guess, trying to be a bit of an inspiration to people that, that you, know, you can go on to have a successful life. And I hope that my example is, I, I, like, for instance, I know that after the day after my documentary, calls about psychosis to the charity Mind rose by 107%. So people were obviously going, oh, that's what happened to me. Or, oh, that's what happened to dad. Oh, that's what's happening to my brother. People, there's, there's almost no language for psycho, particularly psychosis. It's the, one, it's the one area that no one talks about, which I, I wasn't aware of, because it's the one where your liberty is taken. It's the one where you literally are taken away by the men in the white coats. And, you know, there's stigma around it. There's, there's shame around it, which for some reason I, I've never had. So I thought it was a real opportunity to talk about a condition which is rarely talked about, but is extremely common, particularly in the black community, with young black men. So by drawing attention to that, it seems to have really touched a nerve in the community. And I've had young boys in the street walk up to me in South London, clearly on the brink of having a psychotic attack or a psychotic breakdown. Who just stop me and go, hey, man, yo, bruv, yo, bruv, I saw that thing you did, man. And they're, they're, they're right there. They understand exactly what's happening to them. And they say, do you think I should stop smoking? Do you think I should stop smoking? And I just tell them every time, I say, dude, stop smoking right now. Go and get some help. It seems to have awoken the dangers of psychosis to, to the community, and I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of that. And hopefully it's, uh, as I say, gone, gone some way to breaking down the stigma around it so that people, rather than suffer in silence, people will get some help. Yeah. I did a bit, a bit of research on this, and one of the things that you know, I, I discovered is that people who suffer with some sort of psychosis experience usually don't necessarily come out um, of being committed and if they do you know it's very difficult for them to re-establish you know and, and I think this is, a, is an interesting question because I think is this because it's a very particular type of environmental issue going into the subject of your book which you went through but then ultimately evolved from is that connected to it so what was your sort of healing process what did you come to terms with post coming out of those those institutions I think a lot of the questions around race and my identity were, were settled. You know, I wasn't quite so... I think when I came out of drama school, I was I was just very naive. And I, I wasn't really able to cope with the focus that was put on me as, as a young sort of new black actor. You know, of, of these new drama school trained black actors, classically trained. And, you know, I'd sort of gone through drama school not really thinking about race. And then I came out into the main world and it was all about my race. And it, 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 uh, it spun me out. I didn't quite know how to deal with it. I'd never, you know, perhaps naively so, but I think, you know, as I say in my book, you know, I, I didn't answer those questions of myself as a young man. I assimilated and, and you know, kind of, kind of joined in and, and, and I, I wasn't really asking myself maybe some of the more deeper 
cultural questions and, and settling those before I went to drama school. So when I came out, I was still very much sort of, as I say, naive. And in, in a sense, I was just very shocked by the fact that so much emphasis was put on my race when it, would, it had never been put on my race. And I think once I'd gone through the, the breakdown and, and, and was in recovery, I was just much more settled with that, much more settled with how I saw myself, much more content to build a new identity, which incorporated incorporated my, my black identity. That was, the, that was the, the foundation of my new identity, was building this new identity from the ground up, uh, not, not being just a young actor from Birmingham. I was just much more, much more grounded in my sense of race, culture, and identity. And that was, as I say, as, as with the help of some of the great black actors I was working with at the time in the, with the posse and just seeing Victor Romero Evans, Robbie G, Eddie Nesta, working with, working with young black British actors, strong and confident. That was a real benefit to me, a real benefit to me. I was able to sort of look at these British black men and say, you know, they're all individuals. Victor is got his dreads and he's, you know, he's, he's just so supremely himself as a black man. Whereas, you know, you got to, you know, Gary's completely, Gary McDonald's completely opposite. Gary's, you know, again, possesses his blackness, but he's, he, he's, uh, he's just very, very different. Very, very, you know, it's very, 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 it was like a, a cockney in, in, in a sense. And very strong in his identity. And there, was, there didn't seem to be any of those questions that I was sort of suffering from about maybe because of my voice and, you know, coming out of drama school initially, it was a difficult time. I think the way that I was speaking, I think a lot of, a lot of people in the black community were a little bit suspicious of me and a certain amount of rejection from the, white, from the establishment as well. So it was a difficult time for me to sort of judge where I fit into the, into the kind of picture. And I think after working with the posse and working with those black actors, it was just easier for me to say, well, I'm different. You know, I've got my way. Gary's got his way. Victor's got his way. Robbie's got his way. You know, you, we can be individuals. We are not a monolithic group. We don't have to all be the same. Uh, I think that was, was, was um, a great comfort to me to see that I could be myself and not sort of have to fit into any one box that, you know, society or... I thought I had to be in to succeed. So just in terms of the, the creative process, and, and obviously you are a creator, you're, you're, you're an actor, and so there's an element of creative in that. And then you do a documentary, and yes, it's you know, based on your actual life, it's a creative outlet, and then writing. In terms of the writing versus documentary making, is, is the process different? Did it, did it change the way you felt about your experience? Did you discover things differently through the documentary versus actually writing the book? Oh, completely. I mean, the documentary was a real shock because I went into it feeling like I knew what it was about, but I didn't. So when I kind of discovered the truth, it was that, that day when, when Nick and Jez took me back to the hospital was really difficult because that's when I suddenly remembered everything. And it was, um, it was scary. It was a very frightening place to be. Because um, I, I was just really, I didn't know what else I was going to find. So for the rest of the shoot, I was in a really vulnerable position. And it almost dragged me back to the vulnerable place I was in 30 years ago. It, was the, it, it brought all those uncomfortable feelings back up. Um, whereas with the book, 
you know, having been through that experience and kind of already, as I said, once you've sort of touched the hot stone, you know how hot the hot stone is, if you know what I mean. Uh, you know, I, I, I guess I'd, I'd kind of weathered the storm in a sense. and I knew it was going to be, so I kind of, I was aware of the darkness. But once I'd opened the medical records and really dived into the, uh, the, the truth of what happened to me, I actually found it very, very liberating. And then I was much more able to analyse analyze it from a historical perspective. So, for instance, during the documentary, I never mentioned my father. But when I, when I started writing the book, I thought, of course, my dad had a great gun. You know, so that's both of us. Both of us in the space of 10 years having mental health issues. That's powerful stuff. So I then went to the historic. So that's when I sort of found the historical angle of it. And then thought about, you know, again, my, my family you know, the Harewood family. And so it's, it became a historical piece as well. So I was much more able to, as I say, analyse it from a, from a different perspective after the documentary. And the book has enabled me to just go much more in, in, in depth as to what happened, why I think it happened, and then linking it back to my mindset as a kid and uh, sort of growing up at a time when, as I say, you know, you, you, you were sort of, Getting to school in the morning was 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 almost like an obstacle course, you know, of running away from threats. So I was sort of putting all those all those pieces together, and now looking at what happened to me from a place of strength, as opposed to being a little bit shocked by it. I, I think this was much more a, 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 an opportunity for me to look at it from a different perspective. There's a couple of things. So I'm fanning out slightly because I, I, you know, I went through reading it and I was telling my, my business partner how much this is really difficult to read for two reasons. One, some of the things that happened to you, things like people putting excrement through your, 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 your front door, uh, just some of the, the kind of racial undertones and you kind of hoping that it's not about that and you, you, you want to feel like you belong here. I had a story where I talked about, uh, I was playing out, on my, I grew up in a working class estate in Hackney and, I, and on that estate, they were singing uh, a version of 54321. I don't know if you know that song. And it had, it's like, we pulled the trigger, killed the N word, 54321. And I didn't know what the N word meant. So I was just singing along and we were walking with sticks, pretending to be guns. And then they would like point it at me and I was like, ah, and then I'll just play along. Then I went home and then I, I was singing a song back in my house. And then my mum was mortified and then explained to me and then didn't let me out for a week. She was just like, I don't want you out there with them. And then, you know, there's a piece of you that you're trying to grapple with it and be like, no, maybe, maybe this, the song meant, <laughs> you know, something else. And for, for you in terms of like the idea of belonging in, in the UK, what, what does that actually even mean to you? then versus now because you know my relationship is I, I probably don't think i've ever really felt belonged i always felt more a descendant of jamaican culture that happened to be here rather than feeling british and when i tried to connect with it i quite often got rejected to be honest so i haven't really had that connection what, what was it for you uh, you know very much the same you know very very much the same and, and, and I, you know that's that is ideally what the, book, the book's about is 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 grappling with that that notion of belonging uh, you know, some people don't have it. The folks behind the Sewell report, I'm sure, feel very British. Feel very British. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. I tried to keep my face together, and I couldn't. I'm sure they do. I'm sure they think no. You know, they fly the flag and they've got a picture of the Queen on the wall, and I'm sure that makes them feel comfortable. I'm sure it does, but, not, but it, it doesn't for me. It, it, it kind of never has done, and it's unfortunate. You know, it, it is unfortunate because this dual identity that we have to assume sometimes, I think it's, it, it, it's a protective thing for us because everything's fine until the space says it isn't. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So you can score for England 
and you're a Jamaican born, the Jamaican born Raheem Sterling, you know, it's, he will never be, you know, if he scores a winning goal in the World Cup final, he'll still be the Jamaican Raheem Sterling. I don't know, I just find it, I've always found it bizarre that, that we don't necessarily always celebrate our. our Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Perhaps it's too late for that, you know, but you know, it, it, it wasn't like we was, we've ever been celebrated as Black Britons. And I think, I think that's a real shame. You know, I think that's a real shame. And, you know, living amongst these culture wars that we do, you know, you, you've got the Home Secretary calling Black Lives Matter a disgusting movement. I mean, these are tiny microaggressions for me that sort of continually push us away from the establishment or away from feeling comfortable in our, in, in our English, British identities. I think the microaggressions just keep pushing us away from that. I think we have to rely on some, another, that's why I call it a black identity. We have to rely on this other fallback identity because I don't think we feel safe in that purely English identity. And as I said, as I say in the book, you know, I thought I was going to be kind of welcomed in. I thought I was, I thought I was, part, I thought I was going to be part of the establishment, part of the, the main. And when the space started rejecting me straight out of drama school, it was a real shock to me. I was just black actor, black production, black, black. And it was just like, well, whoa, I, you know, I, I, I was no longer an individual. I was just the black actor, David Ayer. And I found that really um, dismissive and it sort of the non-personal way that they were referring to me, particularly in articles and interviews, was very destabilizing, very, very destabilizing. Who 
would you say this book is for? Is it for Priti Patel and Tony Sewell to understand the experience of the other side of what they think and understand? Is it for people like me who, you know, my, my, one of my closest friends that I grew up with went through stress-induced psychosis and, and really struggled. He's actually, he's, his new experience now is that he doesn't actually know who I am and, you know, going through that. Is it, is it just all black people knowing that it's possible, understanding the journey that it's possible to recover? Is it the white, white people, which is, you know, 60 something percent of the population? Who, who would you like to take away and, and, and connect to this? And what do you think they will take away? There are already so many battles going on inside the black mind. And I'm hoping that, that people may, may read this book and think that they have no idea of the amount of gymnastics that we have to do in order just to get through the average day. And, you know, I know, I, I know that I was having this row with a family friend last year during lockdown after Black Lives Matter, and I, I couldn't really believe some of the things that he was saying. And this is somebody in the family. You know, he was saying, you know, I'm working class. So, you know, when I go to some of these jobs, you know, I, you know, I can't, I can't speak to working class. I've got to kind of posh it up a bit. And I was like, I said, so you have to change your accent. You're saying you have to change your accent in order to get work. I said, yeah. So that's, so that's, that's a, an example of how I think I have to change. I said, well, you know, black people have to make that calculation even before they walk out the door. You know, you know, because they don't even, you know, if their name's a particular way, when they turn up, somebody's going to be surprised that they're black or surprised that they speak well. You know, we're, we're, we're constantly having to make those calculations of how we are, we are perceived. So, I, you know, in a sense, I hope this book is a bit of an insight into, as I say, the, the level of, I mean, this is an extreme example of the level of sort of mental gymnastics we have to sort of go through to kind of get through our lives. But at the same time, I hope, Gave it. I gave a copy of the manuscript to my stunt double here in Vancouver, and I saw him physically shaking reading it. And about twenty minutes after, sort of, I went to play a scene. I came back, and he was just kind of sitting there shaking his head. And he, I said, "You all right?" He went, "This book has really triggered me, man. This has really, really triggered me." I said, "What way?" He said, "Well, you know, because he's an immigrant from Rwanda when the troubles were were going on, and he." Uh, you know, he remembers being the only black person. I think he first landed in Sweden. And he says he remembers being the only black person he could see. And he just was terrified. of. He didn't know who these white people were, what these white faces were. And he said he was shopping with his, with his mother one day in, in the, some village. He was seven years old. And this woman spat in his mother's face, called her a dirty black, and was extremely abusive to her. And he said for years he had a real problem with it. Hated, hated white people. He was always in fights. He was always scrapping. He could never understand it. And he was really on the bad course. And he ended up having a bit of a breakdown. But, you know, he's kind of got his life together now. And he said reading the book really triggered him because he understood exactly what happened to me when I, when that, when I was racially abused, when I was seven. That split for him, I said, it went in a really bad way. But he said the whole thing really triggered him. And he said, you know, he's been looking for years for a book that sort of explained what was kind of going on. He was full of praise for the book and just saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm really glad I found this book because I think I needed it. I needed to just understand that it wasn't either my fault or it wasn't like, it wasn't me that was, that was, that was kind of bad and evil. You know, I was sort of reacting to my circumstances and the book seems to, be, seems to have really, really helped him. So I do hope that if there are vulnerable black people out there that, you know, as I say, it gives them some hope that they can overcome their struggles. You know? 
is it this this is a, a quite a difficult question because it's really hard to to transport feelings through words but is are you able to explain what it's like to be on the receiving end of racist abuse and why it's different to any other form of negative experience you may have. Like sometimes when we talk about race, as you mentioned before, people incorrectly conflate it with, you know, oh, I'm I'm slightly larger and people call me fat all the time and I don't, you know, march and, you know, tear down statues. No, there's that person. What what was, how would you explain that feeling specifically comparison to just like, you know, fat phobia or something else? I mean, you know, most of the time we brush it off. We internalise all our trauma and tend not to face it, deal with it. We suppress it. We don't want it to get the better of us, so we suppress it. But every now and again, when we talk about it, or every now and again, when it's like I, I found that during the Black Lives Matter movement last year, when I was asked by interviewers to talk about it, I found myself really emotional. This is dark, this is deep stuff that we purposefully tend to not talk about because. We're so busy being strong. We're so busy having to be strong or having to sort of, you know, not let it affect us that when it does affect us, I think, I think there's a well, an untapped well of trauma that we're all, we all sort of possess. And when that well breaks, I think it can be really powerful and really upsetting and, and so and, and none of us want to go there like I, you know as I said to my I used to ask my dad about it my dad would never talk about it and I would always wonder why and now I know fully well as an adult I know fully well why. I mean I'll, obviously I'll be there for my kids if they need to speak to speak about that but this isn't easy stuff racism isn't easy to talk about you know drawing on memories as I do in the book you know when you remember those things you remember the things you've dealt with on a daily basis Going to just walking to school. You know, you, and I remember how tense it used to make me feel, how scared it used to make me feel. And I was just reading my book, reading the audiobook on Saturday. And it came to a bit in the book where I talk about that. And I had to stop because it was, I got really emotional. Even though I think I've dealt with it, even though I think I'm, it's in the past, even though I've read, I, I wrote that piece over three or four months ago, just out of the blue in the middle of recording just hit me. I got really emotional. I think racism touches on some sort of primal trauma that I think we each possess. We, but we do a very, very good job of pushing it down and suppressing it and not letting it affect us. Because the minute it starts to affect us, I think that's when, you know, we get into trouble. Whether it's anger, whether it's attitude or, or, or whatever, I think it can have dangerous and explosive consequences if you allow it to get the better one of the things that i'm i'm really aware of is just um it, it felt like a rejection that i couldn't change and many a times in my experience i've always felt you know if someone doesn't like how you present yourself you can just adjust slightly and you can be slightly more chirpy or you can be funny or you can be better at football and then they will like you and i felt like that was just like a full stop it just felt like a brick wall of i can't do anything about that i'm just rejected as a complete person and i really struggle with that understanding um as a, we're a parenting podcast i'm i'm slightly fascinated by uh, i read about your mom your mom reminds me of my mom by the way she's reminds me of the epitome when we talk about amazing black mothers we kind of automate to this like superhero 
No problem is too big or too small. They will fight someone for you and hug you and then make you a meal all in an hour. Like, how, how did your mum teach you things or, or support you through the whole racial experience of racism compared to your father? Was there a massive difference? And obviously, this is a generational gap as well. So there might be different textures, but it'd be good to hear the difference between the two. Yeah, I think mum was always much more straightforward and much more nurturing and caring and just making sure I was, you know, aware of certain cultural aspects or she'd sort of, you know, just talk to me about you know, West Indian culture or she'd continue to cook West Indian food. You know, she was very strong or, or very uh, serious about sort of maintaining certain cultural norms. So at least three times a week, there'd be West Indian food. I think just to see that, that nurturing love that, that, that mothers had where dads are a little bit more stoic, silence. I'm not sure about your, your your father, but you know my dad. Very rarely gave advice. Very rarely gave praise. You know, it was just a very it was a strong silent type. You know, and I think it was it was very much down to even though he was still inspirational and and hardworking, it was my mum that did the talking. It was my mum that did the nurturing. It was my mum that really did the sort of hands-on loving. And particularly when I was when I was ill, she was the one that nursed me back to health and. And really sort of has always sort of been there looking after my, you know, she, even now she, you know, she'll, she'll ring every other morning just to see how I am. But she's, 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 always, she's always the one that will ask me how I'm doing and sort of inquire about my mind, inquire about how I'm feeling, inquire about my well-being. That, that wasn't really my father's role. It was always my mother's role to, to do that. And it was unfortunate when, when, after my father had, you know, his breakdown, you know, he, he, um, sort of got, you know, he just changed and, you know, the two of them went their separate ways. But it was, it's always been my mother who's been the one that's looking out for me and, and um, showing the love. And, I, I, you know, very, very grateful for that. Hmm. In terms of not spending time in North America, you know, your career is probably largely based out of um, the US and Hollywood now rather than the UK. How would you describe the experience differently from you know North America to here? I know sometimes when George Floyd happened, everyone was like, yeah, but that's North America, isn't it? And it was kind of like dismissed. But someone who's lived in, in both territories, how would you describe the sort of racial atmosphere? And do you think your your book would mean different things in different in, in different places or is it one universal concept? I really don't know. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how what, what, what people make of it. I think it, it does force people to look at the, the idea of sort of trauma. I, I, I also think that, yes, as a black individual living, as a black Britain living in North America, working in North America, I mean, it's, it's been, you know, I certainly feel like I'm seen here much more than I have been in the UK. I've been acknowledged here. I've been celebrated here, trusted, awarded, you know, positions, directing. You know, so I'm, I'm you know, I've, I've found very much that, that, that the Americans have really welcomed me with open arms in, in, in that sense. I mean, there's still an, an issue and there's a, still an issue, you know, with, with certain sections of, you know, the American community that I think who, who are still grappling with this idea of Black Britons playing Americans. You know, so there's, there's, there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of resentment there. But on the whole, I've grown enormously in working in North America and, and, and being exposed to the strength of the American black voice. I've really, really been quite, quite inspired by it. It's taught me a hell of a lot. And I think with, with George Floyd, the movement here, 
you know, there was enormous corporate movement here. I mean, it's not all come to fruition, but I work for Warner Brothers, and they immediately had all these panels and uh, group uh, Zoom calls with all their black artists, whether they were in, in, in all their shows, to talk to all of their executives, and their executives heard stories that they probably never heard before, all about makeup, how we do our hair. There's nobody on the on the bus who knows how to do black hair. You know, I think all these things came out, and been really impressed with how Warner Brothers has responded since since George Floyd. I do, as I said, I do think that many people in the business of, uh, in, particularly in the behind the camera, heard the call for equality and diversity in, in our profession, and I do think in other professions. They heard that call and have, and have action and have, have taken action on it. Whereas it's been difficult to translate that in England by the sounds of it. You know, we, we, we call Marxists rather than uh, people campaigning for equality were, were suddenly Marxists. So it's a very difficult argument in, in England. And it's a tough argument in England. And in a sense, that's why, you know, I, I, again, I kind of write the book it, it, just to try and il- illustrate the, the difficulty in, in trying to get this message out we're trying to get the message of Black Lives Matter out in the UK because all too many people are trying to tell us what it's not. When we know what it is, we know it's a call for equality. But, you know, if you're taking the knee and people are booing you and you're, you're, telling, you're telling them why you're taking the knee, but they're still booing you because they're, they're saying it's one thing, you're saying it's another thing. That's, an, that's, just, an, that's just, for me, that's an example of just how much work we have to do in the UK, in order to get this message out, that we're literally looking, well, you know, we're talking about equality and uh, and civil rights. We're not talking about Marxism. This is not a political, a subversive political movement. This is something which is looking for equality. So, I think I, I think we've got a long way to go in the UK before people hear our message. But you know, I I, I, don't, I don't think we should we should we should stop talking about it any time soon. I think we should continue the fight continue the struggle absolutely my, my final question is a slightly fan question uh, it's a bit lighter than the previous conversations we've oh, had good. but first and foremost i'd like to congratulate you for being an incredible even militia leader in blood diamonds i really was convinced i didn't like you in that role i didn't feel comfortable <laughs> with your attitude towards <laughs> diamonds or black people uh so i think it was absolutely fantastic but the role that i'm i'm most passionate about and this actually is interestingly something that shaped me as a as a man and my vision of fatherhood is your role as baby father we can't not talk about that as we are the dope black dad's podcast what how would you like what do you remember from that time but also how did you how do you kind of view parenting then versus now because even the term baby baby father has been completely diminished you're not allowed to refer to fathers in that way we are men we are male parents we are trying <laughs> how, how do you remember that time and the kind of catalyst for that show and what was going on then versus now it was difficult it was a difficult show there, there was a lot there was lots of contention in the, with the show i think the writer wasn't happy with the deal that was his, his manager did so he was bad-mouthing us in the black community telling people not to watch it uh, there was a whole wow. lot of it was a really difficult process and Mm. I think at the time, at the time, the, the Voice magazine was telling people not to watch it, which was like the only black newspaper. You know, <laughs> it was just so difficult. I mean, you know, people calling people calling us sellouts. So it was it was it was a very difficult job, uh, and I think we all got a little bit burned uh, on it, really, which was a real shame because I thought 
one of the first opportunities to do sort of quality drama about mm. the black community and its many myriad ways and means of fatherhood uh, and, and parenting. You know, we had yeah. we had good parents, we had bad parents, we had single parents, we had you know, all all different varieties of the, the, you know, as I said, the relationships that, that, that exist within the, within the community. And it was only by the end of the first season that um, the voice and Choice FM were suddenly going, oh, this is pretty good. You should watch it. But it was too late by then. They'd already poisoned the well. So the BBC were very afraid to touch it again. So it, was, it sort mm. of disappeared. So it was, a really, it was a real shame. It was a real shame. I thought That's we sort shame. of shot ourselves in the foot there on that one because the, because the community itself, again, that's maybe an example of when, when you're rejected by your own a little bit. There was a, there was a little bit of backlash against it. And unfortunately, that sort of poisoned, poisoned the well. And the BBC went running to the high hills and never, never ever did it again, which was a real shame. Mm. Just, just from my perspective, just so you know, I was probably too young to be aware of any of those things going on. Just, just throwing that my a little age in there, uh, so I had no idea. For, but for me, seeing one black man on screen was absolutely important and pivotal to discussing fatherhood, which never gets discussed anywhere. We're kind of normally a punchline for some other centralized conversation. Uh, yes. It was incredibly important, but also the acting was amazing. You know, there was always this kind of thing where usually something that were was faced by black people was always underfunded and underproduced and it didn't have actors in it. It had just, you know, Absolutely. the lines and the editing wasn't strong and it was a bit like, oh, we like it, but, you know, and I think there's always about Baby Father, uh, Real McCoy, Blouse and Skirt, there's like a generation, the Richard Blackwood show that really made us really proud of the content that was coming out on TV, Desmond's. And, you know, so for me, it means a lot. So thank you for going through all of that headache and going through the wall, because without you, we wouldn't have a legacy of other shows that were able to be created because it's very fondly in our heart. We probably should start a campaign to try and get it back on Netflix, but I'm pretty sure it will be a nightmare trying to sort out with the writer. But just just thank you. Thank thank you for, uh, you know, this book and the documentary you've done. As soon as I told people I was meeting with you, everyone started trying to be extra special with me and throwing questions. I was like, no, no, this is my conversation. Back away. Uh, and I think you just mean a lot to us. Uh, and you've kind of reoccurred in meaning a lot to us over a very extended period of time. And one, that's not actually easy to achieve, but also you've just managed to pop up at very poignant times. So thank you for, you know, digging into your life and, and creating this documentary and this book. You know, I'm, you know, I read it and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm advocating that people read it. It's not an easy read. Why it's not, it's not say, Harry Potter. Why did you say it's not an easy read? Because it, it hit me. I had to stop. <laughs> Uh, on three occasions and I, I needed some time I took six hours off I was skimming it and I was like oh I was like, oh, yeah I remember that then you start getting angry at people that aren't there you start visualizing people from your past I was like look this is not you know this is not a Harry Potter vibe this is a, that internalizing but it's so important because you know when, when my friend uh, went through stress induced psychosis I didn't understand uh, and I actually centered myself a little bit I was a bit like well, well he's not my friend anymore why doesn't he want to talk to me and I didn't understand what he was going through and I couldn't verbalize it to people. And people would be like, so where's your friend? You two were always together. And I felt like he rejected me. And it wasn't. Mm-hmm. It was so much bigger than that. It was so deeper than that. Yeah. So it's just, it, so it, it specifically tracks a chord with me on that subject. But I, it's a real read. It's a real book. It's, it's, it's not fluff. It's an experience. And I, and I, you know, would love to see it some sort of programmed or 
visualize because I think there's texture in there that people need to see. So, you know, I'm, I'm also promoting for that. So I'll speak to my friends wherever I have them and say, could you try and turn this into some sort of TV program? Because it's really rich and I think it's really important. So thank you. I thank really you appreciate very it. Thank you much, Marvin. I really appreciate that. I appreciate your words. Thank you very much for the interview. Thank you so much for the things that you've said. It makes me feel like I want to come home now. And, 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 um, and, and, and Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. get on it so um come we'll have a homecoming uh, everyone seems to want to hang out with you anyway so we'll have a homecoming we'll bring everyone together <laughs> it'll be great we'll do it fantastic and so thank you guys for listening i really much appreciate it we'll be back next week with another episode uh you can find us at at dope black dads on all social media platforms you can also email me for a chat at hello at dope thank you so much for listening my brothers i appreciate you all uh, we'll be back next week <laughs>